This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we take you across the state today. We'll hear from folks on the Eastern Plains about the future of health care there. Later, Grand Junction's mayor on balancing recreation and energy development. First, Denver's population is booming, as you probably know, but its housing stock hasn't kept pace. Consider this. The city grew by nearly a quarter between 2000 and 2015. New housing, though, increased by just 17 percent. This winds up hitting lower and middle income folks especially hard. It's one of the findings from the Urban Institute. The D.C.-based think tank focuses on economic and social policy. I spoke with the Institute's Diana Elliott. And welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You equate this to essentially Denver having added the equivalent of a small or medium-sized town in terms of people, but not in terms of housing. That's right. So, for example, since 2010, Denver added over 75,000 new residents. It's really quite astonishing how much it's grown in just a really short period of time. And housing in general hasn't kept up, and specifically low- and middle-income housing hasn't kept up. That's right. So what we see in the data is that there's a real lag in the number of housing units that have been added overall. And when we dig into that a little bit deeper, we find that, in fact, it's it's really that a lot of market rate housing, if any housing has been added at all, has been at that level. So it's not necessarily housing that satisfies what, for example, people in the middle, your nurses, your teachers, your retail salespeople need in order to be successful in the economy. Okay, so what has been added in in droves, you're saying, is market rate that is not housing attainable or accessible to many who work in the professions you named there. That's correct. And in in particular, there's been a lot of market rate rentals added. There aren't even very many entry-level homes or condos being added to the market, which then only feeds the demand for market rate rentals. So it's it's a bit of an imbalance in the system right now. And, of course, uh, movements in the state legislature this past session having to do with construction defects reform, backers hope that might spur some condo construction. You do dig down into some specific Denver neighborhoods. Um, and I want to point out five points and Whittier, mm-hmm. which have, in, in your mm-hmm. words, gentrified over the last 15 years. Uh, how does that impact long-term residents there? Yeah. It, what we see in the data are that the, the people that live in those neighborhoods now are different demographically than the people that lived there in 2000, for example. So just in a very short period of time, 2000 to 2015, there's been remarkable change. You have housing values in those two neighborhoods that have increased tremendously. You have increased cost burdens for the people who have stayed there. And the people who are moving there are generally higher income and have had more economic success. So it's really creating a a rapid change in the population that's living in those neighborhoods. Now, that's a good thing if you're an owner, but not so much a renter, right? That's right. And that's a theme that came out throughout conversations we had um, with stakeholders in Denver, is that displacement is really happening at a rapid clip in some neighborhoods. And the thing about displacement is it, it creates a lot of disruption in individual family lives. So we heard, for example, about children coming to school with a lot of stress because their families are going through financial uncertainty and uncertainty about where they're going to live. Can you say more about the toll on people? 
Absolutely. So for example, you know, if you have a, a family that is facing imminent displacement, they might be really attached to their community. Um, their kids might be in a school that the kids really like. And if your rent is going up by hundreds of dollars and you don't have hundreds of dollars to spare every month, that's a tremendous burden. So what we heard from many stakeholders in the affordable housing space in Denver is that people are being displaced often out of Denver because the neighborhoods they were already living in were among the more affordable in the city to begin with. Hmm. So they're often being displaced to inner and outer ring suburbs and often within short periods of time being displaced again because affordability becomes an issue in those suburbs as well. Wow, so multiple displacements. Multiple displacements. And it really speaks to this being a, a larger regional issue for consideration, right? So what are the regional impacts and what's where's the space for regional collaboration, which is really quite considerable in the city? You point out that uh, neighborhoods like Montbello and Green Valley Ranch, which are on the northern and eastern parts of Denver, would be good opportunities for affordable housing to be prioritized. Uh, why is that? So it really speaks to preservation. So one of the things that we draw out here is that because this group in the middle, workforce housing um, group, low to middle income households, they're not eligible for subsidies. And it's really challenging to afford market rate housing. So looking at areas where naturally occurring affordable housing can be preserved, which is often housing that might be a little bit older or housing that might be more modest, wherever that can be preserved is a really good strategy for making sure that that families can stay. It's important to note that you're not saying that affordable housing has had zero growth by any means. It's just that it hasn't been commensurate with the the need, the population growth. I'll say that the city recently passed and allocated $150 million for an affordable housing trust fund. Uh, That money is to be used to develop affordable housing in the city. Uh, But I guess that's not sufficient. Yeah, it's really quite impressive that Denver has that affordable housing trust fund. I want to just emphasize that that's really sort of stand out in terms of of national programs and what's happening. Um, That said, this is a a real challenge in terms of making sure that enough units are created for that group in the middle. And it's going to address some of the need, but it's definitely not going to address all of the need. So to whatever extent other funds can be leveraged, could more philanthropic groups be pulled into the fold? Could there be social impact investing, which could be used to additionally fund affordable housing for families? As part of this report, you took a more in-depth look at Globeville, so a neighborhood that's sort of along I-70 there. Why did you choose to focus there? Because it's one of the last places where there is affordable housing in this city, really truly affordable housing, it's relatively close to downtown. It's a lot of single-family homes, which is also very attractive. It's also on the cusp of rapid change because it's about to have a light rail station open. And what we've seen in our data over time is that areas where there are light rail um, located in proximity they've undergone rapid change within that 15-year period that we examined. So again, the light rail is really impressive in Denver, but it's also created this unintended consequence of, of increasing property values and rents along the light rail. You're making reference to the G line in particular in that part of the city. Uh, and so light rail has had the effect of 
uh, perhaps increasing mobility and as well property values, but it is another factor in squeezing people out of the market. Right. Paradoxically, low to middle income families need accessibility to transportation to get to jobs. Um, But having proximity to light rail stations, for example, has increased the housing cost burden. Diana, how does this connect to homelessness? As you have housing costs that go up, housing becomes less affordable for families in the middle. Again, this displacement piece happens And where people are being displaced is often a big unknown. So part of what might be captured in homelessness in the city is families doubling up with other families. Um, Not just families being forced out, but families becoming homeless in a sense and living with other families. What else might you recommend for Denver? So for example... Accessory dwelling units. Now, these are sometimes called mother-in-law additions, or they're they're known as being sort of a separate um, outbuilding, perhaps on someone's property. This has the potential to be a really important avenue for exploration. There is a pilot project going on in, in West Denver looking at this right now. But there is a risk also that if you create these units, it could perhaps amplify gentrification. Another option, for example, that could work in this area is could you leverage property values, increased property values and increased tax valuations from those property values to dedicate it directly to affordable housing? Um, So for example, we, we raised this point, tax increment financing. Two examples in Texas where they created zones in highly gentrified neighborhoods or gentrifying neighborhoods and said, we're going to take that increased property tax value and we're going to dedicate a percentage of that to creating and seeding affordable housing in those same neighborhoods. So it's a way to harness what's going on in the neighborhood to make sure that people who are already there can stay. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. Diana Elliott is a senior research associate with the Urban Institute. You can find a link to their new report on low- and middle-income housing in Metro Denver at cprnews.org. Congress is hammering away on changes to Obamacare, and Coloradans are anxiously awaiting to see what they come up with. In a little bit, we'll hear from people on the eastern plains who hope they'll get better care as a result. CPR health reporter John Daly will take us to Hugo, Colorado. First, though, wariness of proposed cuts to Medicaid, what they would mean for patients in Denver. The new CEO of Denver Health, Robin Wittenstein, is here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Denver Health serves about a quarter of the people in Denver. And you expanded quite a bit under the Affordable Care Act. You built a primary care clinic staffed up at schools and community clinics and with mental health services. Why have those changes been important? Denver Health takes care of a lot of patients who are un- or underinsured, and the ability to expand the clinics that we have to add uh, new staff to add services like behavioral health integrated into our primary care clinics really gives us the opportunity to address the chronic health care needs that patients have in a setting that is effective for maintaining health and for really making sure that we can deliver high-quality care but at a an effective and cost-effective way. As opposed to folks turning to the emergency 
emergency room, you were saying. Absolutely. You know, patients who have um, significant health care conditions need to be able to get a steady and stable health care treatment plan. If you go to the emergency room, whatever the condition or problem is that you present with will be taken care of, of course. But it really isn't the most effective way to take care of, of health conditions. And and then one of the challenges with it is that while your acute illness or injury can be addressed, the longer-term um, st- stabilization of your health condition doesn't get addressed, and there are often unintended consequences and complications that come out of of health conditions that aren't cared for regularly. Let me say that uh, about half of your patients are on Medicaid since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and I, I hear you saying that you've been trying to find them essentially a medical home and one where they can get both care for their bodies and their minds as well. But do these new facilities that you've opened under Obamacare also help you better serve other patients, non-Medicaid patients? They do. So the the care that we're providing in our clinics that are spread out across the city and county of Denver um, offer really high-quality primary care services for anybody who needs that. Mm-hmm. And they do integrate behavioral health um, care. So if somebody has a comorbid um, you know, mental health illness or just concerns that need to be dealt with on a daily basis, we can have those same services provided all at the same time. Okay. So you say that that benefits the wider community, not just the Medicaid community. I'll say that the U.S. House of Representatives passed the American Health Care Act it would roll back the Medicaid expansion. Now the bill's over in the Senate, where it is expected to change significantly, quite possibly restoring much of that money to Medicaid. But talks in the Senate are still very preliminary. Governors have been weighing in on this debate as well, including Republican governors who hope that Medicaid isn't slashed to the tune that the House envisions. How closely have you looked at what you would do if Denver Health loses a significant amount of Medicaid funding? I mean, at what level of detail are you sort of forecasting for those cuts and how you'd handle them? We're certainly um, keeping a very close eye on what goes on with the American Health Care Act. Looking at um, significant changes in the Medicaid reimbursement and cuts to the program would have a devastating impact on an institution like Denver Health. Uh, The expansion of Medicaid really gave us the opportunity to not only build new facilities, but also to add services to the clinics that already existed and to make sure that we were hooking patients up with a primary care home. If Medicaid cuts go through to the extent that have been projected with the the new uh, act, we could be looking at um, significant reductions in the number of patients who have insurance and and really an opportunity for them to go back into emergency rooms for care, to stop seeing their uh, physicians on a regular basis because they either don't have insurance or they can't afford um, out-of-pocket costs that go along with that. And and let me just say that there are some who believe folks on Medicaid, at least some of them, would be able to afford private insurance. It's possible that some would. Um, certainly, I think that any blanket statement that patients who are on Medicaid could not infor- afford primary uh, private insurance is not going to be completely accurate. But when you think about the patient population, especially the population that Denver Health serves, which really are people who have significant um, 
not only financial challenges, but a whole host of socioeconomic and family dynamics as well, I think that there would be large numbers of those who would, in fact, not be able to afford insurance. And they'd be uh, struggling to take care of their family as opposed to buying health insurance. That could be quite costly. Would you care to be more specific about what you think the impacts then of that would be? Um, if the if Medicaid cuts were to come down, you know, in the the ranges of numbers that we've heard, I think we would be looking at having to potentially cut back on programs or services, relook at the kinds of added value um, that Denver Health brings to its primary care clinics. One of the things that Denver Health focuses on a lot is not just providing medical services for our patients, but really partnering with uh, community organizations, uh, city and state uh, government agencies to offer our patients an opportunity to access a whole range of services that help them to live you know, quality, productive lives. I think if the cuts were to come through, uh, we would really have to go back and look at whether or not we could afford the staff that helps to connect patients to a lot of services that extend beyond just medical care. So the tentacles into the community, I know that that often has to do with public health and disease prevention, for instance. Absolutely. So uh, President Trump has supported the House's Medicaid cuts. Uh, They're reportedly reflected in his first full budget proposal, which is expected tomorrow. That is a reversal from his candidacy when Trump uh, said he promised no cuts to Medicaid. Have you been in talks at all with state officials about whether Colorado might be able to pick up some of the slack if there are significant cuts to Medicaid? At at this point, we've had conversations with various elected officials about what the potential impact would be to Denver Health, and more importantly, to the patients that we take care of, really looking at making sure that our elected officials understand what those impacts would be and the kinds of cuts that might have to occur. So those communications have been happening? We've we've started having those communications. We certainly want to see what the uh, budget proposals are, and we're interested in seeing how the American Health Care Act progresses through the Senate to see what the impact might be on us. We are speaking with the CEO of Denver Health, the large safety net level one trauma facility in Metro Denver, Robin Wittenstein. And Robin, one alarm that Denver Health has sounded is that if there are cuts to Medicaid, it might affect the cost of care for uh, others who are not on Medicaid, who are privately insured, insured through work. What evidence do you have that that would be the case, that the cost shift we heard so much about when Obamacare was being formed, uh, would would rear its head again. You know, one of the interesting things about healthcare is that the major governmental payers, both Medicare and Medicaid, reimburse providers at less than the full cost of healthcare. If we look at healthcare as a business, and we at Denver Health don't like to look at it as business, but nonetheless, we have to be able to to invest in programs, services, staff, etc. When we look at receiving less than the cost of the care that we provide, uh, many organizations will find themselves um, cost shifting having uh, to increase prices to non-governmental payers in order to help um, pay for all of the services that are needed. At Denver Health, we have pretty limited ability to do that. Um, The number of uninsured patients that we take care of, the Medicaid and the uninsured, are about 70 percent of our total business, plus Medicare. I see. So the pool of the uh, insured at Mm -hmm. Denver Health is fairly small and thus not a great reservoir for raising more money uh, if indeed you need to shift costs. Um, True. But at Denver Health, what we've done is focus on how we can 
be as cost-effective as possible. So over the last um, two or three decades, the hospital has really focused on reducing costs, on becoming more efficient at driving out the waste that occurs in any healthcare organization as a way of maintaining the pricing structures that we have. So another thing that was supposed to bring down the cost of care Uh, especially for those on private insurance, uh, is something called the hospital provider fee. The state puts this fee on hospitals and then repays them for the care they provide low-income people. Uh, We talked a lot about it this year because lawmakers found a way to reclassify this in the state budget, which basically means more state and federal money for rural hospitals and for Denver Health, something that you said was critical during the debate. Uh, But the state created the hospital fee on the promise that it would mean people with private insurance pay less, again, connected to this cost shift. The Denver Post, though, recently reported that hasn't happened. Uh, What more can hospitals do to bring down costs in the system overall, do you think? Well, I I think there are two points that are important. First, if you look at the hospital provider fee, um, which we were extraordinarily grateful uh, the cuts didn't occur. But even with the hospital provider fee, the average Medicaid reimbursement is about 75% of the cost of care. Now, that's up substantially from where it was in 2009 when only about 50% of the cost of care were, were covered. But you're saying it's still not paying for the cost of services. Correct. And so um, hospitals that take care of large numbers of un- or underinsured patients, uninsured or Medicaid patients, are still having a gap between the reimbursement that's provided in the, in the cost of the care. I think what I hear you saying is that the hospital for provider fee was never, at, at Denver Health at least, going to solve the cost shift altogether. It was going to minimize it. I think it wasn't going to solve the problem altogether at any institution. Uh, what I suspect happened, although I don't have the data to prove this, is that the rate of increase was probably probably mitigated by the fact that the hospital provider fee was put in in the first place. Um, but again, I think the focus in terms of reducing health care costs needs to be on um, providing more efficient, more effective care, which is why you know, focusing on primary health care services is so important to the patients. We don't want them to be in the emergency room. It's not the right kind of care, and it's also a very expensive way to provide care. Hospitals and advocates for rural health care cheered the legislature's decision on the hospital provider fee, and it sets a course for more stable funding for hospitals that treat low-income patients. But uh, a quarter of the state's population is on Medicaid. I mean, its share of the state budget keeps growing. Are you concerned about that and, and what it would mean for Denver Health? Certainly, there is no one right answer to how much of any state's budget ought to be spent on Medicaid. So our focus is less on what is the appropriate percentage that should be spent, but on how we can be as responsible a steward as possible on the funds that come to us. So our goal is to continue to increase the the provision of care in more cost-effective settings to make sure that we can link patients into specialty care. So, for example, one of the biggest challenges that un- and underinsured patients have is being able to access specialty care after they've been to a primary care doctor. So we are really focusing right now, having grown the primary care network, we're focusing on how do we provide specialty care more effectively. And improving patients' health overall and making them less expensive as a result by meeting those needs. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Robin Wittenstein is CEO of Denver Health. We talked about federal health care changes and what they could mean for the region's biggest health care provider. 
All right, now some views on health care from Colorado's Eastern Plains. CPR's John Daly filed this story. In his home on a quiet street in the small town of Hugo, Carl Dutro strums his guitar. Dutro has poured his passion into this room. It's a makeshift recording studio slash shrine to John, Paul, George, and Ringo. He's got a recording booth and guitars, along with John Elway and Elvis memorabilia, Beatles, photos, posters, and tapestries cover each wall. 1964, when they were on Ed Sullivan, was what made me go to music. So I've been interested in that, played in the band for about 40 years, and just having a lot of good times, fun. Fun is not how Dutroux describes a series of recent health-related headaches. He and his wife Brenda were small business owners. For 30 years, they ran Osborne's, the only supermarket in this town, 100 miles east of Denver. Now they're semi-retired. Since the Affordable Care Act launched, Brenda says their monthly premiums have skyrocketed. Because I think ours jumped from 700 to 1700 So that's what it's jumped. In what span of time? Three or four years. Yeah, three or four years. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what they should really call it, is Non-Affordable Care Act. I'm going to put my two cents in here. I don't know why everybody thinks the government has to control our lives. It just seems like when the government gets a hold of something, they can screw it up and make it three times more expensive, and it doesn't, to a point, work. And I think that's what we're finding out with Obamacare. It's going to explode. So even though Carl is 64 and Brenda is 62, they've decided to go without, to drop their health insurance altogether. They'll take their chances at least until Carl qualifies for Medicare when he turns 65. Brenda describes a recent phone call with their insurer, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's very emotional because it's like, what do we do? How do we fix this, you know? And the one lady says, well, I'm sh- I think that sounds high. Let me see if we can get you a cheaper rate. And she said, that's the cheapest we can have. She said, can I ask why you're dropping? I said, yeah, we can't afford it. I said, it's, it's too much. Their struggles don't end there. The Dutros say their insurer has dropped them every year since Obamacare started. Last year, Carl was hospitalized with blood clots in his lungs. The bill came to $11,000. Insurance only covered a third, and they're using Carl's monthly Social Security check to help pay off the rest. They say the whole health insurance system is a mess and believe there's a primary culprit. I think it's the Obama administration. Because he's the one that came up with the plan in Congress. And I think I get really frustrated because it's almost like they're not listening to each other, both sides, which infuriates me. I don't think we're headed the right way. The system is kind of backwards at the moment. Lincoln County is Trump country. 78% of voters here, including the Dutros, chose Donald Trump. And they say they're looking to the president to improve things. I want to back him and hopefully he can do something to turn this situation around. We've got to pull together. That sentiment rings true with Justin Carter. He's 35, a father of six, and a volunteer firefighter. Carter and a couple of other firefighters load 20 racks of ribs into the VFW hall for the town's annual fundraiser. He voted for Trump. If we can get the health care under control, that would be phenomenal, especially for a small community like ourselves. I mean, any break that we can get, it would be phenomenal. Carter is a mechanic at Parmer's, the town's only automotive shop. 
He splits his insurance costs with his employer, but says his premiums have been going up and up. He likes that Trump is a businessman and hopes he can use those skills to rein in runaway health premiums. He's a bulldog, and hopefully we can stop getting bullied middle class and, you know, start living a little better instead of worrying about paycheck to paycheck and being insurance poor, is like I like to call it, you know, paying so much for insurance. Just up the street is the Lincoln Community Hospital, the only hospital in this county of 5,500 people. A dozen small birds, finches, act as greeters in the lobby of its long-term care center. Most of the 29 elderly residents here are on Medicaid, the federal health insurance program for low-income Americans. One of them is 67-year-old Carlene Thiel, the former elementary school teacher, likes living in a small-town care center. Well, I've always been in a small town, so I definitely felt comfortable here. And when I walked in, I knew this was a good place to be. There was just a feeling about it. You felt cared for. Potential cuts to the Medicaid program could mean cuts to recipients and hospitals like this one. One estimate puts a third of the nation's rural hospitals in precarious financial shape. Thiel admits she hasn't followed the legislation closely, but says she worries about this hospital staying open. That's the part that probably worries me, that should we lose this, that would be very devastating. Thiel is a rare Hillary Clinton voter in this part of the country. She's concerned about losing what she gets from Medicaid and apprehensive about the new president. I kind of hold my breath every time he opens his mouth, and that bothers me. I don't have a lot of confidence in decisions. Ideas are good, but the way that he goes about it concerns me. Down the hall, Michael Gaskins is also worried about the future funding of Medicaid. He's the hospital's IT director, and his 90-year-old mother, Crystal, lives here. She receives financial help from Medicaid, so he's watching for changes. It is a burden if, if they make cuts that they're not going to compensate as much. That money's got to come from somewhere, and that's going to come from the family. Still, Gaskins, a Republican, says he's no fan of Obamacare. With uh, the previous administration, one of the things that just absolutely floored me was how the cost of health care rose. And that was exactly the opposite of what we were promised. Colorado saw a historic drop in its uninsured rate under Obamacare. Now a number of major health groups oppose the Republican plan, saying they think it could reverse those gains and even cause health costs to rise more. But Gaskin says he's ready to give Congress and the new president the benefit of the doubt. At this point, I have to say that the man was elected president. Let's let him do his job. And if he sees a need to take an action, I'm not going to second guess him. Gaskin says efforts by the Trump administration and Republicans to repeal and replace Obamacare aren't perfect, but they're a start. I'm John Daly, CPR News. John's story is part of a series about Coloradans who stand to be most affected by new Trump administration policies. So how might they help or hurt you? Call 720-358-4029, 720-358-4029 to let us know. Or if the number just flew past you, you can go to cprnews.org connect to find it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
The largest city on Colorado's western slope has a new leader. Earlier this month, the Grand Junction City Council named at-large council member Rick Taggart mayor. He has a background in the outdoor industry with Marmot, Swiss Army brand, and Timberland. He becomes mayor as Grand Junction sees some economic momentum and yet lags behind booming Metro Denver. In addition to the economy there, we'll also talk about high-speed internet access, homelessness, and teen suicide, which has emerged as an issue there. And Demare, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Grand Junction is doing fairly well these days. Unemployment's down, sales tax collections are up. Uh, but your economy is still very dependent on the energy industry, which can be fickle, to say the least. Where do you see the greatest opportunity for diversifying your economy there? I think we see the um, diversification coming from several industry sectors, um, most notably the outdoor industry. We're blessed to be in a community where um, there's tremendous cycling in the area, there's tremendous hiking, there's skiing, golf, um, differing from uh, what folks on the Front Range face, we can be to skiing within 45 minutes and we can be on trail bikes and trail running within five minutes. And so the ability to combine a, a wonderful outdoor lifestyle with a workplace uh, gives us a tremendous opportunities for the future. And it's what brought me to Grand Junction uh, to buy Marmot many years ago um, was that uh, balance between uh, my love of the out-of-doors and, and my business. Um, I think the second area, uh, we're seeing uh, an emerging tech industry and tech um, entrepreneurs, and the university is helping us a great deal there um, with a situation of an engineering, full engineering school coming online in the next few years. So I would expect to see even more young entrepreneurs associated with tech. And then, of course, we're the regional hub uh, when it comes to medical services. We have the largest medical uh, community uh, between here in Denver and here in Salt Lake City. And so I would expect to continue to see that area grow significantly. But diversification is absolutely critical because we well, in my time here, even though I've been away at times on my corporate ventures, um, I've seen boom and bust now three times, and we, we've got to take those peaks and valleys out of this economy. Three times? Yeah, I mean, a bit of history here. May 2nd, 1982, became known as Black Sunday for much of western Colorado. That was when Exxon announced it was shutting down a project in the region, putting thousands of people out of work. And uh, I guess, what, you moved uh, in the 80s to Grand Junction, so you you can certainly reflect on those booms and busts, and it sounds like you you want to avoid that. And yet at the same time, uh, there's some optimism under this new administration that oil and gas will have a resurgence on the West Slope as well. So uh, are these things fundamentally at odds? Can they coexist? What are your hopes? They can coexist. Um, I, I think the danger, though, is... And I, and I saw this. We have some great partners in this community that are really working with us on economic development and are really leading the charge, and that's our Grand Junction Economic Partnership, our chamber, and one of the finest incubators in the world. Um, I think 
the danger if um, the energy sector comes back strong, which there are indications with the Jordan Cove project that that may in fact happen, is that we become complacent as a community. And we just cannot afford to be complacent. Uh, It's, um, you know, energy and extraction industries are going to be a significant part of our economy when when the dollars and cents um, are there um, and it's a reasonable cost to extract. But in between, we have to have a much more diverse base. I'll say that the Jordan Cove, that's the energy project involving liquefied natural gas and export terminal uh, over in Oregon, but which connects uh, into the inland west. Uh, I know that Halliburton in Grand Junction has also made some hires recently, but you talk about uh, the balance there, not putting all the eggs in one basket. Uh, in, in terms of potential job additions in Grand Junction, you know, U.S. Senator Cory Gardner has said he'd like to see the Bureau of Land Management, which oversees vast acreages in the West, moving west, possibly to Grand Junction, and that moving the headquarters there could mean hundreds of jobs, according to the Sentinel. Do you know where that stands? Are you actively pushing for the BLM to be in Junction? We haven't, um, per se, sent any letters as, as of this point. I think we're um, watching um, very carefully um, what's taking place back in Washington. And I think when the time is appropriate, we will weigh in, and that may come very soon. Certainly, we would like to see the BLM out here in western Colorado um, to service the western part of the United States, given the fact that I think I've seen numbers that say well over 90% of those BLM public lands exist in western United States. So it only makes sense to better understand um, the importance of those lands in our in our local economies. It only makes sense to have that office out here in, in western U.S. And if we're fortunate uh, that it moves in the direction of western Colorado, we'd be delighted. Mm. But it sounds like you're playing it cool until you think that the time is right to weigh in. I, I understand that Congress would have to sign off on that. Um, I want to go to April's city elections. Grand Junction voters overwhelmingly rejected a sales tax increase to fund a new event center there. This is a center you supported. One projection estimated that it could attract about 80,000 new visitors to Grand Junction and around $30 million in retail sales revenue. What do you make of the failure? You, you were in a meeting. You, it sounds like you were listening to a meeting I was having with our city manager here just a few minutes ago oh, yeah? because certainly um, a lot of speculation as to why it went down uh, in a very significant fashion. It was about 75% no and 25% yes. I'll give you my um, speculation on it, and it's something I think we need to research to find out better. There are other needs in the community right now that are very much foundational needs. And I think a good amount of the community, as much as many of us would have liked the community not to make an either-or decision, I think the community, in fact, did make an either-or decision and said, you know, we have some foundational issues that that desperately need to be resolved. Yeah, give, me, give a, me an example of one. Well, school district, uh, District 51, is 
has been underfunded for a great deal of time. And because of its being underfunded, um, the physical plants have really deteriorated. And When you say physical plants, a, do you mean classrooms, things like that? Classrooms, um, how those classrooms um, are in fact uh, outfitted from a technology standpoint, the buildings themselves, the infrastructure, the HVAC systems, um, they're just, it's a very old um, set of assets. And I'm not sure that the school district has yet come to a final number. Um, I've heard anything from 120 million dollars all the way up to a 200 million although I think the final um, ballot issue is probably going to be on the smaller side of that but when you start to consider that and the county has a significant shortfall from a public safety standpoint and they are also looking at a sales tax increase somewhere mm-hmm. in the neighborhood neighborhood of a third of a cent And when you start realizing that those two are very much foundational issues, and by the way, some of that money also comes into a 911 uh, comm center, uh, that we have a comm center that that in fact uh, does um, all of the dispatch work for both police, sheriff, and fire and EMS in one um, facility— that's also underfunded right now. And so it's so really part about of the taking a look at the landscape and what yes. else voters might have seen coming down the pike. And I'll just say that the Mesa County Valley School District 51, it's one of the largest in the state, I think like the 10th or something like that. And uh, Mayor, in 2015, voters in Colorado overturned a state law that prohibited communities from having control over their own Internet access. And that gave city and county leaders the ability to negotiate with Internet providers on installing optical fiber cable or high-speed Internet in the area. But earlier this year, the Grand Junction City Council voted not to move forward on a proposed broadband contract. Is that a block to the very business growth and diversification you said earlier that you want? It's... hmm. It's not really a block. It it was the particular approach um, that was being taken, and that was for us to incur $70 million of additional debt and and a real concern about taking on $70 million of debt and not taking advantage of some of the resources that are in the ground um, today. we So you, you think it was the we, nature of that proposal that that long-term the, the, the question will be answered? I believe yes. Okay. And, and in fact, uh, there are some discussions going on right now, both with the incumbents, um, and I know each one of us as council members is going to meet with the incumbents and listen to their proposals And there are two proposals um, that I know are also coming from larger firms um, that have a slightly different idea of a public-private partnership uh, that may uh, push this uh, issue even further forward. I want to talk about suicide. So seven Grand Valley teens have killed themselves since the start of the school year. Uh, One Grand Junction High School 
graduate started an online petition last fall. She said she's not blaming the school, but thinks there's not enough talk about the issue of mental health on campus, particularly after a suicide. Some teachers uh, have told CPR News that they have concerns in that arena as well. Last week, Grand Junction High School principal Ari Goldberg told us teachers are not typically trained as mental health counselors, and so they partnered with the Mesa County Health Department and local organizations to provide services. I don't know if the answer is just hiring mental health and putting them in schools. It's a very complicated situation because really you have you have teenage children um, who it really goes way beyond the walls of a school. Goldberg also said social media adds another layer to this. Uh, You're a former board member, I believe, of the Western Colorado Suicide Prevention Foundation. How how do you think the city can assist schools? Well, I think, um, again, I would say it is a really complicated issue and a complex issue. And there's no... I, I wish there was a simple fix for this. And you are right. I was one of the founding board members of the Suicide Coalition in this community because I lost a very, very, very close friend. And still to this date, I scratch my head and wonder what I could have done differently. Um, I think we as a city, we have to do everything we can to help the mental health um, specialists. And can you give an example of what that might be? Possibly can. Well, um, in terms of uh, when they need help on a grant, um, we have um, we have a facility here called um, Mine Mine Springs, and Mine Springs is in 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 the process of uh, growing its capital, uh, its its infrastructure. Can we help them um, from helping them on their grants? Can we help them as a co-sponsor? What can we do to, in fact, um, bring uh, continue to build? that mental health base within the community. And let me just say again, that that's... MindSpring uh, helps those suffering from mild to severe mental illness. They also deal with addiction in Western Colorado. They do. Mm-hmm. They very much do. Um, I think the schools um, and the principal is correct. Um, do we need to be furthering in District 51 um, a situation of more he- mental health experts within the school district. I know the university has a has a distinct um, uh, department, uh, which is part of the student services um, group, uh, a group of mentors uh, that is working with students and trying to identify the stresses of that students are going through at a university level. This is at Colorado uh, Mesa, I gather. This is Colorado Mesa, and so. We just need to be as supportive as we can. We are not mental health experts, and and I don't see us um, playing a role, per se, of having a department within the city, because I think the experts really need to, we need to help them in any way we can. So you see it as a supporting role. We have just under a minute. Do you you have um, some thinking on why Grand Junction has had these suicides at such a high rate? I don't, and certainly, and I don't know that there's a direct um, correlation between uh, the health of economies and and suicide, but certainly 
I, I have my concerns when families are, are struggling from a financial standpoint. Um, you know, we are, uh, while our uh, job unemployment rate has now dropped into the 3.2%, that sounds good in comparison with last year, but I'm still worried. Um, are some of those people underemployed, and what kind of pressure does that put on the family? And we know that... Uh Mesa County has lagged behind the metro area for sure in that regard. Thanks for being with us. He's Rick Taggart, Grand Junction's new mayor. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.